Good morning. Tom is going to be preaching through 1 Peter again this morning, and we'll be reading from uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. I made the comment the last time that I was up here to read that I couldn't read from the iPhone. It really is not the Bible. My young son informed me, who's very tech-savvy, that very much is the Bible, and loaded the New American Standard on my iPhone and showed me how to highlight. I'm now part of the 21st century. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, may our church be an example of the love and service that we read. Help us to port ourselves well toward you as it relates to these key and important verses. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. The verses that Joe just read continue Peter's exhortation that started in verse 1 of this same chapter. And it's about time. The exhortation is about time. Peter just called us in the last few verses before these to live the rest of the time that remains to us in these mortal bodies. No longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He spelled out in those first six verses the negative assignment, giving us a list, especially in verse 3, of the kinds of things for which we who belong to Christ must no longer live. And all of those things revolve around the abominable idolatries of self-indulgence. Now in verses 7 through 11, he spells out the positive assignment. He gets more specific here about what kind of life we are called to live with the time that remains to us here. But knowing the what of our assignment doesn't in itself give us the why. And of course, God doesn't owe it to us to give us reasons to live holy lives beyond the fact that He's holy and His character demands holiness from us as His image bearers. But God very graciously gets more specific here, just as He does in many, many other passages of Scripture. He not only tells us what He's commanding us to do, He tells us why It makes perfect sense for us to live every day of the rest of our lives entirely for Him. At the beginning and at the end of today's passage, Peter gives us two whys for doing the what. He lays out two very compelling reasons that this revolutionary life to which he calls us is the only life that makes any sense at all for us as children of God. 
Now, he already made it crystal clear that as we deny ourselves every indulgence in the lusts of men and live every day for the will of God, we will face much opposition. So it's important for us to have these compelling reasons in mind as we go about living the way we're called to live. Now, like two bookends, the first of these two powerful reasons comes at the very beginning of the passage, and the second comes at the very end of the passage. The first reason that Peter gives us to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God is the shortness of the time. And the second and preeminent reason that we are to live godly lives is the worthiness of Christ. Between those two compelling reasons is all the rest of the content in these verses. And that's the, the what. It's the positive side of what God requires of us. So we'll take that in the order in which it's presented. First, reason number one to live only for God. And that is the end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter already drew a very sharp distinction between the time already past in which we live for the lusts of men and the rest of the time that remains to us in the flesh. Now he comes to the uh, what I'd call the urgency factor. This is the reason that it's so critical that we stop indulging fleshly desires right now and steadfastly live for the will of God from now on. That reason is because the end of all things is at hand. The time is short. Now I think many believers find it hard to take that declaration seriously because of the amount of time that's elapsed since Peter wrote it. They figure, okay, well it's been a couple of thousand years since Peter said the end of all things is at hand. So if that's what God means by at hand, what are we getting all excited about? How do we know that it won't be another couple of thousand years or more before this end actually comes around? And the answer, of course, is we don't know. You don't know when Jesus will return any more than I do. And if you think you do, you need to think again. And there's a very good reason that you and I don't know that and that we don't get to know it. God intends for every believer in every age to live every moment of his earthly life knowing that Jesus Christ could very well return right now. And the reason that he wants to leave us in that mode is so that we will be vigorously and urgently engaged in doing his work right now. There's way too much at stake for us to to live any other way. And even if you knew that Christ was not going to return for two or three thousand more years, the urgency of this exhortation would still apply to you personally because the little bit of time that you have on this earth to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ could very well end on your way home from church this morning, this afternoon. 
James says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. When Peter says the end of all things is at hand, the word that he uses here for end is uh, not merely referring to the last thing that will happen chronologically in the history of men and nations as we know them, although I, I believe it encompasses that. The word he uses is the word for perfection or completeness. He's talking about the realization of God's whole purpose for things. The finishing out of His great plan of redemption by which Christ is making all things new. For an unbeliever, that imminent end of all things should be the scariest thought of all. As Peter just said in verse 5, all those who reject Jesus Christ and cling to their abominable idolatries will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Nobody will escape the judgment of God, and his judgment is always just. Those who bear that judgment upon themselves will spend eternity paying the debt that they owe to God for their violation of His holiness, the violation of which we are all guilty. But for the redeemed of God, whose deserved punishment was paid in full by Jesus Christ when He died on the cross, the culmination of all things at the soon return of Jesus Christ is the sweetest thought of all. Our living hope, which sustains and energizes us, is the rock-solid certainty that Jesus is indeed coming back soon. And that when He does, we will be with Him forever. Spotless and blameless, covered in the righteousness of Christ, together with all the beloved people of God. But the knowledge that our time in the flesh is very, very short adds great urgency to our calling, to our mission while we're still here. We simply do not have time to waste. Breaks from our daily routine are nice, and they can be very constructive when they're purposeful instead of pointless. But beloved, we don't live for the days off the way the world does. We live every moment of every day to do the will of God. Our Sabbath rest is not found after serving God and serving men. Our Sabbath rest is found in serving God and serving men. And we don't have time to waste. Starting in the second half of verse 7, Peter lays out six practical ways that we are to live in light of this time-urgent calling. Six ways that our remaining time in these mortal bodies is to be useful to God. This is the positive prescription for a life lived for God. First, we are to be sound-minded and sober unto prayer. Now we'll get to the unto prayer part in just a moment. But first, what does it mean to be sound-minded and sober? Well, it helps if we look at what he's contrasting these 
instructions with. Back in verse 3, he talked about the behavior of unbelievers. Look at that list. He says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. These things are the antithesis or the opposite of sound-minded and sober. In the most literal sense, <laughs> sober is the opposite of drunk. And that in itself is worthy of serious consideration, as I mentioned toward the end of the last message. Since you know that the time that remains to you to be useful to God and the lives of the people that He's placed around you is very limited. And since you don't know on what day and at what time God will choose to use you in a critical mode in the life of someone else, you simply cannot afford to give over control of your mental and physical faculties to alcohol or drugs. There are several people in this room who could testify to, to how God has used them in a crisis in the life of another person when they least expected to be used in that way. And in those circumstances, if any of those individuals had been drunk or stoned or amped up on drugs, he or she would have been just useless to God. But this call to be sound-minded and sober under prayer goes much further than just being sober in the literal sense. It's a call to live always with eternity firmly in mind. To think always about the eternal ramifications of everything that you do. And of every response that you allow yourself to have to the circumstances and people that surround you. There can be nothing passive about living for the will of God. The life to which we are called demands that we always be purposeful, thoughtful, and sober. And if you think that that means that it's a life devoid of pleasure, <laughs> you've got things completely upside down. The world loves to convince Christians that really living for Christ is boring. There's nothing boring about it. <laughs> we're talking here about the life for which we were created and recreated. The strategic, Christ-focused, eternity-driven life of the child of God is as good as it gets this side of glory. If you buy into the lie that says there's something better, you will live the life of a fool and you will be wrong. The unto prayer part of verse 7 is oh so important. <laughs> a life devoted to doing the will of God is a life driven always to prayerful, complete dependence upon God. It's a way of life that drives us to our knees daily and often. What remains of our time in the flesh will either be lived by the Spirit or it will be lived by the flesh. And I'm convinced from Scripture that the primary determinant of which of those two it is 
is prayer or the absence of prayer. I love to quote uh, Merrill Unger's very concise definition for prayer at the beginning of the article in Unger's Bible Dictionary on that topic. He says, Prayer is the acknowledgement of dependence upon God in all things. Our prayers don't inform God. Jesus made that crystal clear in the Sermon on the Mount. God knows everything before we open our mouths. Our prayers certainly do not manipulate God. God's not reacting to us. Our prayers are our acknowledgement before God of utter, absolute dependence upon God for everything and in everything. That includes our praise, our confession, and our requests. All of it. We come daily and urgently before the throne of God's grace because our only help, our only source, our only good, our only strength to live the Christian life, and the only one worthy of praise and adoration is God. And because we know that the end of all things is indeed at hand... (laughs) Prayer is a time-urgent matter for us. In order for us to live always for the will of God, we have to pray without ceasing. Everything that God has revealed to us in His Son and in His written Word drives us to sound-minded, sober living and sound-minded, sober prayer. That's the Godward expression of living for the will of God to which Peter calls us in this passage. In verse 8, he turns to the manward outworking of this same lifestyle lived for God. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Of all the practical instruction that God gives to us to live for Him, this is job one. Fervently love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You may say, but but our first priority is to love God, not to love men. That's certainly true. But listen to these words from 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now this is the second time that Peter has spoken of fervent love for the brethren. The first was in chapter 1 verse 22 when he said, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. The word fervent has the connotation of stretching something to the limit. It speaks of great intensity. Not so much emotional intensity as strenuous activity. Peter's calling us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that demands very much of us. It stretches us to the limit. Immediately after commanding us to keep fervent in our love for one another, he adds, because love covers a multitude of sins. When we hear that statement, 
we immediately assume it's talking about forgiveness. Love forgives all kinds of sins. Well, that's certainly true. But I'm not sure that's what Peter is thinking of when he says love covers a multitude of sins here. James uses this exact same phrase, covers a multitude of sins. Listen to these two verses from James 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, he should know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. I believe the covering that's at issue in both of these passages is more about restoration than forgiveness. It's about rescuing a fellow saint from the minefield of countless different sins and bringing him back to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Love most certainly forgives. But godly love goes beyond forgiveness. Like the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in a safe place and goes relentlessly after that one wayward sheep to pluck it out of harm's way and bring it back to the fold of God, love rescues the sinning believer from the minefield of living for the lusts of men and turns that child of God back to the path of life and godliness. Fervent love is more than kindness or charity. Fervent love fiercely protects the flock of God, the body of Christ. Fervent love calls every member of the body to forsake the lusts of men and to live what remains of the time we have here only for the will of God. And in that way, love overwhelms, covers a multitude of sins. In verse 9, Peter commands us to be hospitable to one another without complaint. Couldn't he have stopped before he got to those last two words? Isn't it enough for us to open our homes and to sacrifice our sacred privacy? We actually have to do it without complaining? You've got to love Peter. Peter knows how we think and act, and so he just points it right out to us. So we can't dodge it. Have you ever invited some folks over for dinner a week or so in advance and then when you're a day or two out from the actual event, you find yourself wishing you could have that evening back to chill, to recover from the, the steady stream of obligations that have consumed every evening since you made the in, in, invitation? Have you ever had a missionary family staying over or a young brother or sister who's fallen on tough times staying at your home and find yourself longing for the peace and quiet and normalcy that you know will return when that person or that family finally leaves? I know, of course, that nobody here at CBC would ever have such terrible thoughts. But just imagine that such a thing could happen. I don't believe that Peter's point here is just to get us to browbeat ourselves over such violations of genuine hospitality. Godly contrition is a necessary response to sin, but it doesn't get the job done all by itself. Peter's calling us to delight in showing hospitality to 
to our brothers and sisters in Christ because we fervently love one another from the heart. And he's calling us to do so now. We get to spend eternity with each other. But we don't have a whole lot of time left to open our arms and our homes to one another while we're still here waiting for the imminent return of our Savior and our Master. And if you think about the persecution that was rapidly heating up at the time that Peter wrote these words, it puts this call to hospitality without complaint into a rather different light than we are accustomed to thinking about. Consider what hospitality toward your fellow saints looks like when those in control of government institutions have decided that Christians are all enemies of the state. Taking a believer, or for that matter an unbeliever, into your home who is being unjustly targeted by powerful people in powerful positions might save his physical life. And it might cost you your physical life. The exceedingly risky hospitality that the Ten Boom family extended to Jews for the sake of Christ during the Nazi occupation of Holland cost that entire family their freedom and all but Corey their lives. Genuine hospitality does not come easy for some of us, especially those of us who grew up in families that lived by the my home is my castle mentality. But God calls all of us, all of us, to hold very, very loosely to our privacy, our food, our money, our furniture, our peace and quiet, our favorite TV shows, even horrors, our pets, for the sake of fervently loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and showing Christ to our neighbors. And the time may well come when some in this room will be called to practice godly hospitality at the expense of their freedom or even of their lives. We're all called to be ready all the time to do exactly that. And the only way that we can do that without complaint is to be entirely on board with God when it comes to why we're doing it. Verse 10 moves from specific to a bit more general. It addresses how we are to go about using whatever specific gift or gifts God has graciously given to each of us. The principle in this verse applies to hospitality, teaching, preaching, serving, helps, any other work that the Holy Spirit determines to do through you or me in the lives of others. Peter says, as each one has received the gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The word for gift and the word for grace are from the same root. We are to employ God's grace gifts as good stewards of His manifold grace. God distributes to the members of His spiritual household various gifts. For the common good, for the building up of the body, 
so that we will be supernaturally strong together in continuing the work of Christ on this earth to seek and save the lost. We joked on Wednesday that for Bob and Patrick, manifold grace must have something to do with fixing exhaust systems on cars. The word manifold here means literally many-colored. It speaks of something that is both many in number and diverse in kind. I wouldn't press this next observation too far, but it caught my attention that this is the second time Peter used the word manifold in this epistle. First time was in chapter 1, verse 6, where he referred to the manifold trials by which we are distressed in this life. Many and diverse trials. And now he says God gives manifold grace. (laughs) I love that. Manifold grace for manifold trials. There is grace for every trial. And that grace is always sufficient. Living as stewards, stewards of the manifold grace of God means that we are grace agents. We get to go around giving away the grace that God has poured out upon us every day. That's a a wonderful calling. And we never run out of grace to give because God heaps upon us grace upon grace every day, every moment of our lives here. He calls us to share with others every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift that has come down to us from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It's James 1.17. Always doing so with open hands because we have open hearts. We lose nothing. We lose nothing in doing that. Nothing of abiding value. In verse 11... Peter gives us two commands. The first is, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. He's telling us to speak God's words, not ours. The utterances of God means the oracles or speakings of God, if that were a word. And it always refers in the New Testament to the Scriptures, to the Bible. Now, this verse has used been, it's been used very liberally at pastors' conferences to exhort preachers and teachers to always be faithful to the Word of God, the Bible. While Peter's exhortation here certainly applies to those equipping gifts, pastors, teachers, evangelists, we should note that Peter does not use here the typical word for preaching or teaching. He uses the word that means to speak. Whoever speaks. I believe he's being intentionally brought here. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to every believer who speaks on behalf of God, and that means every believer. In chapter 3, he said to all of us, be ready. He said, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. We are all called to speak as agents and ambassadors of Christ, both to unbelievers and to one another. Peter says that whenever we do that, 
Whenever we speak on God's behalf, we are to speak words that match up with His words. He doesn't say always quote passages of the Bible word for word every time you open your mouth. He says speak as the words of God. He's saying be sure that what you say on God's behalf matches up with what God says. Now that implies a couple of things. First, it implies that you actually know what God says. You got, you, you need to know the Bible, beloved. Biblical literacy is by virtually all measures at an all-time low in the history of the church. And that includes the time in the life of the church when people didn't have Bibles to carry around with them and certainly didn't have eight different versions on their iPhones. That's not just a problem. That's a catastrophe. You will not speak the words of God if you do not know the words of God. So if you don't, now is the time to start learning what those words are. Years ago, a good friend of mine told me a true story of a godly father that he that he knew, whose daughter fell in love with a young man and wanted very much to marry him. She also wanted very much to have her father's blessing on that marriage. So she brought the young man over and he met her father and they spent a bunch of time talking. Father asked many questions and he became reasonably confident that this young man loved the Lord and wanted to live life and do marriage on God's terms. He also became very convinced that the young man loved his daughter. So when the, the young guy got around to asking the dad for his blessing on the marriage, the dad said, have you ever read the Bible all the way through? And the young man sheepishly and rather fearfully said, no, I haven't. So the father said, go do that. And then come see me again and we'll talk about this, this whole issue of you marrying my daughter. You know what boot camp is? This guy did a self-imposed boot camp. He proceeded to bury himself in the task of carefully reading through the whole Bible. Roughly one month after their first meeting, he met again with the girl's dad who proceeded to ask him what he had learned about God about himself and about how God intended for him to live. The boy talked for more than two hours and it was clear to the girl's father that he could have talked for many hours more. He was clearly excited about the life-changing things that he had encountered in God's Word and he was even more excited about the God who wrote it. So the dad gave him his blessing. One month of immersion in the Bible is just a start on a lifetime of immersion in the Word of God. However you decide to start, beloved, if you haven't started, the time is now. God calls you to know His Word well enough to speak always in keeping with His Word when you speak to others. 
And because of the time that remains to you in this earthly life to do that is very short, that means the time to start saturating your mind and heart in His Word is now. And that's one of those whatever-it-takes kinds of assignments that readily pushes aside all kinds of less important stuff. Peter's last exhortation in verse 11 is this, whoever serves, let him serve as by the strength which God supplies. Once again, while this command certainly pertains to a believer who has a special gift, spiritual gift of service, I don't believe Peter's limiting it just to the exercise of that gift. Since all of us are called to serve others as Christ has served us, I believe this command applies to all of us. We are servants of God and we are servants of man. Every part of our lives involves entrusting our own well-being to God entirely and then attending to the well-being of others as God's agents. In short, every part of our lives involves living as a servant. And every act of service is to be done in utter dependence on the strength and sufficiency which only God supplies. In 2 Corinthians 3.5, Paul says we are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. And he was talking about the sufficiency of his own ministry at the time. See, this makes us very dependent, entirely dependent on God and all that we do because the strength to live this life doesn't come from us at all. And as I mentioned before, prayer, prayer is the means by which we very deliberately agree with God about that dependence. There are two things you and I need to know about enablement to live for the will of God. Two things we need to know about what actually makes us able to do what God commands us to do. First, you are 100% unable to fulfill any part of any command that God has given to you in your strength. There's nothing about you that makes you able to obey God. Secondly, you are 100% able to fulfill those commands in his strength. In Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Whatever situation God puts me in, whatever He calls me to do, I can do it by the strength that comes only from Him. God does not command His children to live godly lives and then withhold from us the power to do so. That's not the way He does things. The power that He's made to dwell within you and me is the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated Him at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named both in this age and in the age to come. Ephesians 2.20 says God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine according to the power that's at work within us. 
We never lack the strength to live for the will of God. Never. We just need to be crystal clear about whose strength it actually is. Finally, the second and preeminent reason that Peter sets before us for living godly lives now is the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Right after exhorting us to serve by the strength that God supplies, he says we are to do so so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We speak God's words and we serve by God's strength so that God may be the one who receives all the glory through Jesus Christ. Because He's the one to whom all the glory belongs. Here is the greatest reason of all for us to embrace God's calling to us to live no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. When we live to do His revealed will, And when we do so on His terms, He is glorified through His Son. And the one preeminent reason that that's the only way to live that makes any sense at all for a child of God is because Christ is the one who actually is worthy to receive all glory. Just as He does in this passage, Peter commanded us in chapter 1 to turn away from our former lusts and to be holy. And then he said in chapter 1, verse 17, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time on this earth. Fear of what? Fear that maybe you've been wrong about your salvation? Fear that your less than stellar personal holiness will prove that you're not and never really were God's child? That's definitely not where Peter's going in that passage or in this one. And the reason I know it's not is because he says so. Let me read verses 17 to 21 of chapter 1 together. Listen carefully. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. See, the overriding reason that Peter gives us to live lives completely given over to doing the will of God is the worthiness of the one whose will we were saved to do. The fear, the fear with which we are to conduct ourselves during the remaining time that we have on this earth is not a fear that God's going to drop the hammer on us when final judgment comes around. That's not what Peter's talking about. 
In John 5.24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has already passed out of death into life. The fear that we carry around with us daily is not the fear that our eternal destiny is still somehow in peril if we have trusted in Christ. That fear has no place in the life of one who who trusts in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The fear that we carry with us daily as children of God is the fear that we might lose sight, even for a moment, of the incomparable worthiness of the one who freed us from the judgment that we deserved and made us his treasured possession forever. We have been bought out of the slave market of sin by the precious, priceless blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter talks about in chapter 1. It's His worthiness that compels us to willingly, joyfully live lives that are completely given over to doing His will by His strength. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let that be our closing prayer this morning and our unceasing prayer every day.